to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. We're going to be looking at a story that's probably one of the most familiar of all the parables that Jesus tells, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. It's a story of two men who are in a temple, religious worship setting. Uh, They're there praying. They're approaching God. But what we'll see in the story is that they have fundamentally different approaches to God. They're both approaching him, but they're doing it from fundamentally different places. And as we look at their story, I trust we'll find something for our own story in terms of how we are called to approach God. So let me read for us from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. And then I'll pray and we'll dive in. He, that is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word, it is absolutely true, and it is given to you in love. Let's pray as we come to open up the Bible. Father, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit among us to teach us, to keep your promise that the Spirit would lead us into all truth. Would the Holy Spirit shape the words that I speak? Would the Holy Spirit shape the words that we hear? Would you enable us as we listen to the story that Jesus tells, humble ourselves that you might exalt us? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. But most of you know, my family, uh, or many of you know, my family has been able to be here this summer that uh, we have three kids, the oldest of whom is a seven-year-old, almost seven-year-old little boy named Elliot, who's a rather delightful kid. Uh, seven's a great age. I'm enjoying him. This was not always the case, necessarily. There are other ages that were more difficult. One of those for us was about three, three and a half, which was when my son was kind of at the height Uh, the epitome, the apex of his whininess. That no matter what we seemed to do, we could not curb this reality that uh, whenever a a command was given or a plan was changed or advice was offered, the rebuttal was always an over-the-top whine. No effort to discipline him, all the things that we were talking about here, time out, go to your room, spanking, none of that stuff seemed to work. It was during this time that we... uh, took Elliot to see an ear, nose, and throat specialist because he had been having chronic earaches. Uh, we thought that they would simply go in and kind of put tubes in his ears and it would help with the earaches, but uh, when we were in the office meeting with the doctor, he started to do his exam and he took a little light and had my son open up his mouth and he looked in and this is what he said. Wow. Come here, you have to see this. And what we saw when we looked in were tonsils that were swollen to the size of small marbles. Unbeknownst to us, our son had inflamed tonsils. The doctor then began to ask us a few questions. He said, has he been excessively whiny lately? And he went on to explain that what was likely happening with Elliot was that because of the infection in his tonsils, whenever he would go to sleep at night, he would never enter into the deepest of sleep because they would fall down and block his airway. It was like having sleep apnea for a three-year-old. And the result is that he was chronically tired and thus chronically whiny. It was a pretty simple diagnosis, 
that then led to a fairly straightforward cure. They set up surgery, they cut out his tonsils, and they put tubes in his ears. And over the next several months, something rather interesting happened, is my son grew progressively better in his whininess. Not cured by any means, but there was a marked improvement because of this simple diagnosis that led to a rather straightforward cure. And I tell you this story because what I think we have happening in the story that Jesus tells us is that the great physician is giving to us a simple diagnosis of a universal problem of the human condition. This, self-righteousness. And then he's pointing us into the direction of a straightforward cure. The good news of the gospel. It kind of breaks down, really, along the lines of the two characters in our parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And so we're going to look at kind of the, the diagnosis through the lens of the Pharisee and the cure through the lens of the tax collector. All right, so, so what's this diagnosis? It's that we are self-righteous. We're all self-righteous. Now, I recognize that some of us are probably sitting here like, oh, come on, you don't really know me, wait a second. I'm not... And then we go to the caricature that we have of what it means to be self-righteous in our mind. I don't stand on the street corner with mean, angry signs or, you know, uh, kind of say hurtful, angry things to people. I'm rather tolerant or I'm rather soft-spoken. I'm not one of those really judgmental people. But you see, the thing about self-righteousness is it kind of has this built-in cloaking mechanism. Is that we often are very mindful of it in other people, but we are blind to it in ourselves. It's a bit like body odor. I had a friend, a roommate actually in seminary that ran out of deodorant one time and then decided it was a good idea just to never replace it. And so he started going to class without wearing deodorant and the end result is that he started to really stink no matter how much he showered. Now all of his classmates were quite aware of his smell but he was kind of oblivious to it until another friend of ours launched kind of a campaign of sabotage. His campaign was this, he stopped wearing deodorant. And it was in a matter of week that they were both wearing deodorant again. Why? Because he could smell the other person's stink when he couldn't smell his own. And I think it's that way with us with self-righteousness. It's obvious in other people. Oh, but it's all too present in our own heart. Jesus gives us a working definition, I think. We're going to look at the definition and then kind of the symptoms of self-righteousness. The the definition, uh, look at verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that's the self part, that they were righteous. All right, what's this righteousness mean? Uh, One pastor whom I'm pilfering quite a bit from uh, this morning defines righteousness this way. Righteousness is a right status that comes from the keeping of a standard. A a right status that comes from the keeping of a standard. Think about your job. You can have a right status, gainfully employed. That comes as you keep the standard. You show up on time. You do the work that's assigned to you reasonably well. Right? You get along with your coworkers. You are attentive to your boss. Right? Now, if you don't do any of those things, what's going to happen? You will have a wrong status <laughs> that comes from your failure to keep the standard. Termination. It, righteousness is a right status that comes from keeping of a standard. And the Pharisee in our story is all about keeping a standard. You see it in his posture. He stands by himself. The implication is, I'm not standing with those sinners over there. I'm standing apart, pure. It's not just in his posture, it's really evident in his prayer. It's a prayer that begins by sort of laying out this resume of religious righteousness. You know, block one of the resume, what I do not do. What does he not do? God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like exhibit A, this tax collector. 
Then he moves into what it is that he does do in verse 12. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The Old Testament requirement for fasting was one day of the year. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. This man fasts twice a week. That's 104 times the call. He goes above and beyond the call of duty, so to speak. The Old Testament required tithing on certain types of income. This man makes very clear, I tithe on all that I get. He's giving his resume of righteousness. He's going above and beyond the call of duty. Now, you should recognize that these are not bad things. It's not bad to exceed what's off is what's happening in this man's heart. You see, he's praying to God, but his prayer is really all about himself. He uses the personal pronoun I five times in the space of two verses. He's resting in his own standard keeping for a sense of his status before God. God, it's good that you have me on your team. Look at all that I do for you. Now, there are obvious problems with this. Right? One is that we know we can't keep the standard. That, that's part of what we were, Andrew was talking about with the children and the necessity of repentance. It is that if we compare ourselves not to other people, but to God himself, then part of what we must confront is our utter inability to keep the standard. It is that we break God's standard. It, it's why we gather here in a church and celebrate the good news of the gospel. Part of the good news of the gospel is that there is one who has come to keep the standard for us. That, that it is not our keeping of the rules. It is not our religious piety or our moral behavior that makes God love us. It, it is that someone else has kept the rules for us that becomes the very basis of our status. Right? That's, Bill has been kind of banging this drum over and over and over again as you go through the book of Galatians, right? Because Paul bangs that drum over and over again. It is that it is not through the law that you're made righteous, but it is through the law keeper, Christ himself, that we're made righteous. But I think the Pharisee is doing really the same thing that you and I do, is that we can kind of have that peg squared away Okay, okay, my status before God comes from what Christ has done. But I think what he's after is more than just status before God. I think he's after status before other people. Which I want to suggest, if you're anything like me, is often what riddles our hearts as well. It is that he's praying out loud that not just God might hear his resume of righteousness, but that everybody else in the temple, the place of public worship, might acknowledge and recognize him for who he is. This sort of self-exaltation can come in a religious form, but it can also come in an irreligious form, right? That you gain a sense of your own value from your keeping of the standard. Just to illustrate, uh, a few years ago, I was in a coffee shop in Savannah, a place where I often meet with students, and uh, I was meeting with a student, and I noticed out of the corner of my eye, this guy walked in, and I, I noticed him because of his T-shirt. It was an all-black T-shirt that had kind of a white circle and had one of those red, you know, no signs like this, and behind the no sign was uh, the cross. And, and then beneath it, it said, you know, no religion. Now, part of why that stuck is that I saw this same guy three days later in a different part of town wearing a different T-shirt that had exactly the same message. I never got a chance to talk to him. I would have loved to know some of his story. But what I was struck by is this. That guy has a standard. It has nothing to do with religion. His standard, I suspect, is something like this. Intelligent people 
reject religion. It's naive. It's kind of the backwards, the weak and needy that need religion. There is a standard in place that he gains a status from by his keeping it. It doesn't just have to be a religious standard. It can be an irreligious standard as well. If your standard is being open-minded or tolerant. Right? When you're those things, you feel good about who you are. Or maybe it's you know, a concern for social justice or protecting the environment. Or, or, or I don't know, what, what standard for you that the keeping of it gives you a sense of worth and value, not just before God, but before other people? Maybe someone praised you early on for being really smart. And most of life since then has been about living up to that standard. It's why when I was in elementary school, right, I nominated myself for the gifted program. Right? Who does that? It's a true story. Much to my shame and embarrassment. The fruit of which you'll hear about later. Maybe... Maybe it's not intelligence, but it's being beautiful or being in good shape. It's why we obsess about what we eat or we exhaust ourselves trying to maintain the image of youthfulness. Maybe you've, you know, walked away from those things or the call of being a good athlete. Maybe it's about success at a job. Maybe it's about living a disciplined life of piety. Maybe it's about a well-behaved family. What happens in your heart when you pick your kids up from the nursery and they say, they were so well-behaved today. All the other kids were awful. <laughs> but your golden child was so well-behaved. It's probably what happens in my heart. You know, is that there's a right sense of pride, but there is also this idolatrous self-exaltation. Ah, oh, here's where my value lies. These are not bad things, but when they become the source of our righteousness, the, the reality is this, is that they lead to anything but righteousness. Right? It's kind of the definition. These are the symptoms that they lead to. Symptom number one, I'm going to give you a couple, is that I, I think the symptom that self-righteousness will inevitably lead to in your life is a lack of gratitude. Ingratitude. It's kind of a litmus test for where we're self-righteous. Now, the Pharisee seems grateful. He thanks God, but I think he's thanking God for what he thinks he's earned which is something very different than real gratitude, isn't it? I see this in my children. You probably see it in yours or in yourself, right? When they get a gift that they think they've earned, they're kind of thankful, but there's no real joy. But when they get something that's totally unexpected, you know, when, when out of the blue, the kind of, you know, the grandparents send the package that has, you know, the over-the-top gift that you wish they wouldn't buy the children, they're just like, whoa! Because there's this fundamental recognition they're getting something they didn't earn or they didn't deserve. You, you see... Self-exalting pride is always the enemy of gratefulness. As Henry Ward Beecher once said, Pride slays thanksgiving, but a humble mind is the soil out of which thanks naturally grows. A proud man is seldom a grateful man, for he never thinks he gets as much as he deserves. This was me. Earlier this week, I experienced a series of back-to-back bad customer service experiences. What happens to me when that happens? Man, can I get self-righteous? I get on the phone with someone, you know, determined to right whatever wrong was done, and I adopt, my wife kind of pointed this out to me. She's like, you're so mean. I'm like, I'm not mean. I'm so nice on the phone. She's like, no, no, this is your tone. 
how dare you treat me this way? I'm smarter than you, I'm better than you, and I do not deserve this sort of treatment. She didn't use those exact words, but she could have, because that's what happens in my heart. I suspect it probably happens in yours too. It's a lack of gratitude. That's a revealer of where I'm self-righteous. Here's symptom number two that's really on display in our passage. Contempt. Look back at verse 9. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they treated others with contempt. You see, self-righteousness leads you away from the ultimate expression of true righteousness, which is love for other people. That's how Jesus summarized the law. But what it leads, self-righteousness leads the Pharisee to is contempt for the tax collector. His words ooze this despising of the Pharisee. As John Newton once said, when people are right with God, they're very apt to be hard on themselves and easy on other people. But when they're not right with God, they're very apt to be easy on themselves and hard with others. And what we find happening is this very thing in the Pharisee is that pride never comes in isolation, as C.S. Lewis says. It always comes in relation to other people. It's, you're never just smart enough. It's always you're smarter than. You're never successful enough. You're always more successful than. You know, it's, it's always a comparative, competitive sort of syndrome. Um, I talked earlier about my nominating myself for the gifted program. Here's where that bitter fruit comes home to rest. Uh, a few years ago, my son Elliot was taking a test to get into kindergarten um, or to get placed in his kindergarten, and it was uh, a, a kind of test where you know you, you look at patterns and have to figure them out and recognize shapes. And he, he's good at these sorts of things and really likes taking them. And as he was taking this test, I was in the room with him, and the lady who was giving it was uh, pretty over the top in her feedback. I mean, she was kind of stroking his ego, and you could kind of see him sort of soaking this, this, this affirmation up. And there was one question that he struggled with for a while, but eventually was able to work out the answer, and her response then was just to you know, be effusive in the praise. Like, oh, that's so good. You did such a good job. Lots of, lots of kids don't get that one. That was very good, Elliot. And he paused in the middle of his test, and he turned and he looked at me in the corner, and he said, Papa, I'm gooder than all the other little boys. Sound familiar? (laughs) He was four and a half. And already, the standard's in place. And already, it's not in isolation. But it's in comparison to other people. Where are the places in your heart, because they're there, I know, that you say, I'm gooder. I'm gooder than all the other little boys or girls. Where, Where do you internally, we're too kind of together to do it externally, but where do you internally Pray the Pharisee's prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like that woman who cannot control her children. God, I thank you that I know my Bible and theology or that I'm a part of a church that gets grace when those other Christians don't. Or God, God, I thank you that I'm not like my neighbors who are making a wreck of their lives with these horrible moral choices. Do you feel contempt? For people whose morality you think is wrong? Look, if there's anyone that had a standard in place, it was Jesus who grieves over the immorality of the first century world. But his response is not contempt. It is heartbroken compassion that moves towards those who are stuck in their sin. It doesn't, again, just have to be religious people that feel this sort of contempt, right? If your standard is being tolerant and open-minded, what do you feel when someone isn't? Like, just look at this whole Chick-fil-A back and forth thing that's been going on. What people feel is contempt for those that disagree with their standard. 
we, we can have all sorts of different righteousness. Where is it that you feel contempt? With a person whose politics is not yours? With, you know, the school choices someone makes? They homeschool, they public school, they private school. You know, Christians are great about picking one of those and condemning people that don't agree with what they think. Or maybe it's not there. We can have an aesthetic righteousness. You can have a body image righteousness. I can't believe that person who doesn't take control of themselves. Look at all the fried food they're eating. Maybe you can have a time righteousness. Like, I'm never late for anything. And what happens when someone else is? Like, you sit and you stew in anger at their, what? Not respecting your time. There's no end to this problem that Jesus is diagnosing. All right, we spent way too much time on that. What's the cure? What's the cure to this universal problem of self-righteousness? The cure is the good news of the gospel, is what I want to suggest. That we find the tax collector himself coming towards, or, or, or moving towards. Uh, the good news of the gospel, that in a nutshell, would be this, that we are more sinful and wicked and self-righteous than we would ever dare admit, but we are more loved and more valued and more cherished in Christ than we would ever dare dream. And the Pharisee is reconciling himself, or the tax collector is coming to grips with these two truths. We, we see him doing a couple things. The first is this. He, he confesses his sin. Look at verse 13. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You, you see, the reality is that in the first century world, tax collectors really were most of the things that the Pharisee thanked God that he wasn't. They were unjust. They were corrupt. They gained their income by exacting from the people a tax imposed by Rome, but they, their income came from by exacting more than what the Roman authorities demanded. So, you know, you get more out of the people, you pocket the difference, right? That's kind of a, a, you know, a business model that lends itself to some corruption. Not only this, but these, these folks were Jewish citizens that were working for the hated Roman Empire, right? They were viewed not just as these immoral and unjust people, but fundamentally as, as national traitors, This was the commonly conceived opinion about the tax collector. And when the tax collector comes up in the temple, he's acknowledging, look, what he says is true. (laughs) I really am a sinner. But he's doing so not with the casual indifference that I think often marks my life after two decades of being a Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know I'm a sinner. This man stands far off. Not feeling worthy to be near the Holy of Holies where the sacrifice would have been offered, or outside of there where the sacrifice would have been offered. And he's doing something interesting. He is beating his chest. This is a common cultural expression for grief and sorrow in the, in the Middle East, in the ancient Near East. It still is to this day. What's interesting, though, is that it's an expression of grief and sorrow that you find happen in public, but pretty much only among women. women. You almost never, even to this day, find Middle Eastern men who will beat their chest in public as a sign of sorrow. There's actually only one other place in all of the New Testament where you find it happening. It's in Luke chapter 23, right after the crucifixion of Jesus. When Luke tells us this, that all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breast. With a sign that is reserved for the most shameful of sorrows, the tax collector stands at a distance and he beats his chest. Do you see how this acknowledgement of sin, not just as some abstract reality, but as a personal offense, you get this, is you probably don't walk around feeling very bad about lying in the world in general, like, I'm so bad, sad that there's lying in the world. But when it's someone close to you, your best friend or your spouse that lies to you at your expense in order to get what they want, now how do you feel about lying? 
There's a personal offense that weights it with a sorrow and a sober reality. And I think that's what this, Pharisee, or this tax collector is modeling. And when that starts to happen in your heart, when you see your sin not just as some abstract reality, but, but as the real personal offense against the God who made you for himself, that the fruit of that inevitably is humility. You were so bad, someone had to die for you. That's your only hope. And, and coming back to that reality, not just in a one-time moment, but again and again and again, is, is the engine that drives the Christian life, not just to the reality of our badness. It's what Andrew was talking about earlier, the gift of repentance, this acknowledgement, this agreeing with God, my sin, bad, deserving of your justice. The repentant heart, you see, is the mark of the righteous heart. The repentant heart is the mark of the true righteous heart. But the Pharisee, if we stop there, that's really not all that helpful or hopeful, is that repentance, as we were hearing in the children's sermon, is both acknowledging what we've done that is wrong, but it's also looking at what Christ has done. And the Pharisee, or the tax collector, is doing that as well. He confesses not just his sin, but his hope. Look at verse 13. God be merciful to me. This is no vague or general plea for mercy. Uh, to recognize this, you need to think some about the setting that Jesus' audience would have assumed for this story. A first century world, when people hear about two men going up to the temple to pray, what the assumption would have been is that it was at one of the time, two times of daily sacrifice, in the morning or in the evening, in which the people would go to the temple, and as the sacrifices would be offered, they would gather to prayer, gather to pray. In the offering of the sacrifices, the priest would take an unblemished animal, he would lay his hands upon it, and then he would proceed to slice the throat of the animal, to cut it up, to burn the pieces of it on the offering as a burnt offering back to God. And it's in this context that the air would have been pungent with incense. The symbols in the temple would have been clashing. Smoke, dark and dense, would have been rising from the altar. And the tax collector would have looked on with the knowledge that the sacrifice was necessary because of the people's sin against God. The sacrifice that was also hopeful because it was the animal's blood and not his own that had been spilt. And the tax collector beats his breast in sorrows and then he begs God for mercy But it's interesting here, the Greek word that's used for mercy is not the word that's commonly used in the New Testament. It's a word that everywhere else, save one occasion in the New Testament when it's used, is used to refer to one thing. The atonement sacrifice. Atonement involves the putting away of sin, the satisfying of God's justice, cleansing, reconciliation. The sins of the people put onto the sacrifice. The animal dying in the place of the people and the people being declared forgiven and reconciled. This is not a general plea. The tax collector is looking at the sacrifices being offered and beating his chest in sorrow. What he's saying is this, make that, make that for me. Here's my hope, that there's one who's taking my place. And as the tax collector beats his breast in sorrow and says, may that be for me, may, may, the, may the lamb take my place, the father looks. The father looks and what he says is, let, let that be for you. We, the sacrifices in themselves, you know, had no power. It was all about what they pointed towards. What this table that we're coming to in just a little bit points towards. The lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world to take away our sins. And it's on the cross as Jesus, the lamb, dies as the sacrifice that the father looks at him. And this is what Luther says, the father says as he looks at his son on the cross. Be you, that is Jesus, you be Peter. The denier. 
You be Paul the persecutor, blasphemer, cruel oppressor, David the adulterer, the sinner which did eat the apple in paradise, that thief which hanged upon the cross, and briefly be you the person which has committed the sins of all men. And therefore you pay, you satisfy. Here now comes the law and says, I find in him a sinner, that is Jesus. Therefore let him die upon the cross. Christ, the substitute. And what I want you to see is that that reality fundamentally gives to you a new status. Look at verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Justified is a word that's drawn from the legal realm. It means to be vindicated, to be declared in right standing. The image is that of a courtroom setting in which a guilty or accused party comes before a judge and he declares you are justified. You're, you are free from the accusations against you. You've been proven in right standing before the court. And what Christ is saying is, is that this man who was marked by humility, by his honesty about his sin, is justified. It's not the culturally expected moral hero, but it's the one who had a life that wasn't together who's justified because he sees his need, but not just seeing his need because he sees the one who is offered in his place. It, justification happens through, not through your standard keeping, but through someone's standard keeping for you. And part of what that gives to us is a new status. If so much of our life is spent clamoring after a sense of status before other people or before God himself, then part of the hope of the gospel is that what we're after, what we exhaust ourselves so much in the pursuit of is already ours. The status of those who have been declared right before God, those who are beloved sons and daughters, those who have been made clean. I, there's a, a story a friend of mine tells about his daughter, um, who had had strep throat on top of a couple other sicknesses. I don't remember they were, but she had basically a week where all she did was stay in bed. She was just sick all week and didn't really get out of bed or to take a shower or anything like that. And towards the end of the week, as she started to feel a little better, he was up in her room talking with her, and she looked at him with these kind of sad little kid eyes, and she said, Dad, I don't feel like a princess anymore. He's like, why? She said, because I'm no longer shiny and clean. You ever feel like that? You confront the reality of your sin and you know you're not a princess anymore. You're not shiny and clean. Part of the good news of the gospel is that through the blood of the one who was sacrificed for us and through the body that was broken, we are made shiny and we're made clean. That's the status that's yours in the gospel if you cling to Christ by faith so that you are robbed of your need to exalt yourself. There is one who is exalting you. And you are freed to humble yourself. Brothers and sisters, the call of Christ this morning is to stop exalting yourself or you will be humbled. Humble yourself and you will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, you know far more than we do even the depth of our self-righteousness. We thank you that you love us enough to come diagnosing what is wrong with us. But more than that, we thank you that you love us enough to take our place. We pray that through the work of Jesus, you would be making us continually new. That we would be people who are marked by humility and not by self-righteousness. Would you make us like the tax collector 
and not like the Pharisee. We ask that you would do this for our good and for your glory.